Section 5 of Smithsonian Institution, United States National Museum, Bulletin 240. Contributions from the Museum of History and Technology, Papers 34 through 44 on Science and Technology, by Museum of History and Technology. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Paper 35, Part 2. The Borghese Astronomical Clock in the Museum of History and Technology by Silvio A. Bedini. Part 2. First Borghese Clock. It is not difficult to visualize the two men, the priest and the clockmaker, as they sat together night after night working out their plans. Father Borghese would painstakingly outline the astronomical principles he wished to have the clock exhibit, and the mathematical principles which would be involved to operate them. Bertola concentrated on them and tried to transcribe the principles into functional mechanical terms, visualizing each operation in terms of wheels and gears. Little by little, the two men coordinated the numerous elements and welded them into an operating entity. They adjourned either to the stark simplicity of the rectory, or, probably more often, to Batola's little home workshop, the priest standing over his friend while the latter worked at his bench in the dark-paneled interior, illuminated only by the several lamps on the workbenches. This first clock, which the two men combined to create, is a monument to the great scientific knowledge of the self-taught priest and the technical ability of the clockmaker, a unity combining astronomical science, mechanics, and artistry. The story of the project is told in a little book, Novissima et Perpetua Astronomica, which Borghese later published, explaining the incentive which inspired him and the premise from which he began his work he wrote, from the foundation of astronomical science long ago, innumerable and repeated observations of both ancient and modern astronomers emerged at last from their hiding places, made light of by the jests of so many outstanding intellects they have so successfully brought to light the paths of the stars and their motions, which are more complicated to us than the Gordian knots. Now it is possible for even an amateur in astronomy, sufficiently instructed, to predict for any given time not only the mean positions of the planets, but also their true longitude and latitude, and even the true time of their conjunctions, and their ecliptic oppositions with all the attendant circumstances. Yet until now, no hypothesis has been devised which would force an automation to show to us, before our very eyes, the eclipses of the planets in their true and certain times. For though there have been men seeking with all their might to bind by laws their artificial heavens, by I know not how many and how great calculations, and to systemize the complexities of the rotations of celestial bodies, nevertheless all of them, as if by common agreement, consider themselves to have made great contributions to mechanico-theoretical astronomy. However, they have only attained, even though closely, the mean locations of the secondary mobiles, and those by a certain rather crude calculation. Some attained by more, some by less, but all by some degree of wandering from the truth, either worn out by the intricacies of the motions, or deceived and deceiving by the errors of their calculations. This fact those well know who, setting about to collect information of this kind, even those publicized not long ago, with true astronomical calculation, have been bored to death while digging out by the most elementary and superficial arithmetical torture, the worst of fallacies spontaneously erupting from thence. 
It would seem that true calculations alone can be desired in mechanico-astronomics. Long study had not only convinced me that an automaton was within the realm of possibility, but that there were many mechanical systems by which it could be achieved. I girded myself for a new project, and developed it theoretically, from the ground up, but under such unhappy auspices that not only did all hope fail that anyone would ever appear who might have seemed willing to set his hand to the work, but that the new discovery itself was scoffed at by many as altogether a nightmarish delirium of unbridled imagination. The first months of the project must have seemed like an inspired dream to the two men, and then must have followed a period of hopeless depression. Bartola undoubtedly felt many times that the clock was an aspiration far beyond their combined abilities and means, but the priest would not be thwarted in his ambition and refused to abandon the project. He felt that it was a work that they were destined to produce. Many times he wrote, he chided, and begged, and shamed his erstwhile partner into resuming the project where it had been last abandoned. Little by little the first clock began to take form. As each new difficulty was encountered, the two men would go back over the notes and sketches to trace the problem to its source. Often a new part of the mechanism would nullify another, which had thus far operated successfully, and a complete rearrangement would be required. Again and again Bertola threw up his hands in despair and begged Father Borghese to abandon the enterprise. He protested that he was not capable of producing such a complicated mechanism. He had neither the tools nor the skill. The priest wished to produce a clock such as the world had never seen before, such as the greatest scientists and clockmakers of all time had never been able to make. But Bartola felt that he was only a provincial craftsman who could not hope to surpass them all with only his simple tools and training. In his book on the first clock, Novissima Ac Perpetua Astronomica, Father Baghese wrote that when he had finally come within a few weeks of the embryo stage in the development of his clock, he was faced with the problem of bolstering the sagging enthusiasm of Bertola. The clockmaker's original enthusiasm had shown promise of great results, but as the days passed and the problems of the multiplex and generally unfamiliar apparatus to be forged for the workings of the automaton became more complex, his ardor decreased. Finally, Bertola became so discouraged by the scoffers and frustrated by the fact that the work was insufficiently organized that Father Borghese wrote that it almost became a harder task for me to bolster up by daily opportunity and importunity the failing patience of the artisan, frightened away from the work already begun, that it was for me to extract from the inner recesses of mathematics and astronomy, without light and without a guide, the whole fabric of the machine itself. In spite of Bertola's protests, Father Borghese prevailed, reviving his friend's interests once more until the two were deep in the project again. Months passed as they worked together on the mechanism, and it seemed as if they lived for no other purpose. Inevitably, Bertola's health began to suffer, undermined as it was by the constant nervous tension, and he eventually became ill from mental strain. He was forced to spend some time in bed, and for many weeks the subject of the clock was not discussed. Bartola's other work, by which he made his living, suffered, and it was several months before he was able to return to his little shop. One year passed into another, and the work progressed slowly. The first clock, which easily should have been finished in less than a year, was not completed until after three full years had passed, 
However, when the priest and the clockmaker put the finishing touches on their great clock, the result surpassed the greatest possible expectations, for it was truly a masterpiece. Not only did it illustrate the ecliptic phenomena of the moon, the sun and earth occurring in their proper time, as well as many other things, but it showed these operations as they succeeded in proper order, taking place through the centuries. With mutual feelings of great pride, the two friends surveyed the results of their three years of endeavor. Bertola realized that he had reached a point of maximum achievement in his work. He probably felt now that he could relax again, that his sleep would no longer be troubled by confused nightmares of wheels and gears that did not mesh together. Time was to prove otherwise. Published Description of the First Clock Father Begazi soon came to the conclusion that it would be desirable to have a written description to explain the mechanism of the clock and its many indicators. He thereupon wrote out the story of how the clock was made, the reasons for embarking on the enterprise, the difficulties he had encountered, and the success which had crowned his and Bertola's mutual labors. Finally, he described the operation of the clock's mechanism and the functions of its array of indicators. The little book was written in Latin, and only a few copies were printed, presumably at the priest's own expense, on a hand-press by Giovanni Battista Manoni, printer to the bishop in Trent. The little volume was stated by contemporary writers to have been published in 1763, although no date appears on the title page. The title, translated, is in part the most recent perpetual astronomical calendar clock, theoretical, practical. The work begins with an introduction for the reader, in which Father Bregesi stated, The little work, which as far as I was concerned could easily have been finished in a year, was only completed after about three years. Fortunately, however, it was so far beyond the expectations of most that not only am I able to foretell with certainty all the lunar ecliptic phenomena and the solar, or rather, terrestrial phenomena, carefully worked out in their true periods, among many other matters exhibited by the machine, but also, within a few hours, I can exhibit, by altogether tangible evidence to the skeptics and the doubting, those very same phenomena occurring within the space of many years, or even centuries, and succeeding one another in proper order with their many attendant circumstances. I was not much concerned about the other eclipses, such as those of Mercury, Venus, and the other stars wandering through the zodiac, or about the other solar eclipses from the transit of Mercury or Venus, since they are altogether undiscernible to the naked eye, and very few compilers or ephemerides wish them to be noted, probably for the same reason. Do not, however, expect, star-loving reader, that here anything at all that you may wish can be drawn forth as from its source, for to demand this would be almost the same as to seek to drain, as from a cup, all the vast knowledge of the many arithmetical sciences from the narrow confines of one book. You will understand how impossible that is when, through prolonged labor, you have grown somewhat more mature in this kind of learning." Wherefore, rather fully, and out of consideration for you, I have decided, setting aside these prolixities, with completely synoptic brevity and with all possible clarity, to expound for you, simply, the proportion of the movements, the description of the machine, and its usage. As a result, when you have progressed a little in theoretical mechanics, you will not only be able to reduce all these things to their astronomical principles, but you may find the way more smoothly laid out for you even for perfecting the machine itself. And thus 
you may be more effectively encouraged to a successful conclusion. Let it be so now for you through the following ten chapters. After these rather hopeful assurances, Father Baghese proceeded to provide a detailed description of the clock dial and functions in the ten short chapters which he had promised, under a separate section entitled Synopsis Totius Operis Mechanici, which is translated in its entirety in the appendix. As Father Baghese prepared his little volume about his first clock, and described its unusual features and outlined its functions, which were primarily to place in evidence the celestial constellations, it occurred to him that it would now be easier, after the experience he had acquired with his first timepiece, to construct another clock, which would present the motions of the two astronomical systems, the Ptolemaic and the Copernican. In this first book he promised the reader that he would undertake the second project. It is fortunate that Father Borghese undertook this project for the second clock, is the only example of his work that is known to exist today. Extensive research has not shown what happened to the first clock, although several sources state that both timepieces were presented to Empress Maria Theresa sometime between 1764 and 1780. Father Borghese lost no time in initiating the project of the second clock. The first and most important step was to inform Bertola, and enlist his assistance. Bertola was adamant he had had enough of complicated astronomical movements. He was delighted by the prospect of returning to his former simple life, producing simple, domestic, elementary movements for his country clients. Father Borghese begged and conjoled. The second clock would be a much simpler one to construct, he persisted. After all, they had gained invaluable experience from the production of the first clock. Furthermore, he had already completed its design. Bertola apparently wavered in his resolve, and, unwillingly and against his better judgment, he allowed the priest's inducements to prevail. Once again the two friends yielded their leisure hours to a study of the priest's books and drawings, as Father Borghese enthusiastically elaborated his design for the timepiece, and Bertola attempted to transcribe astronomical indications into terms of wheel counts. The second clock was, as Borghese had promised, much easier of execution. Within a year it was completed and functioned with complete success. This is the clock now in the Museum of History and Technology. It is housed in a tall case of dark red mahogany, veneered on oak, with restrained carving featuring ribbons and foliate motifs. Gilt brass decorations flank the face of the hood, which is surmounted by three gilt brass finials in the form of orbs. A wide door in the waist may be opened to attend the weights. The case is seven feet, eight inches high, twenty and a half inches wide at the waist, and fourteen inches in depth. The dial is of gilt brass, measuring twenty-one inches high and fifteen inches in width, with a number of supplementary silver dials visible through its openings. Instead of hands, the dial utilizes three concentric rings moving around a central disk, the indications of which are read at two bisecting gilt lines inscribed in the glass face. Twelve separate functions are performed by the chapter ring assembly alone, and there are fourteen openings on the dial. It is estimated that the clock performs thirty separate functions, including striking and chiming. Of the multiple chapter rings, the outermost is one and one-eighth inches wide, the center ring is three-eighth inches wide, and the innermost ring 
one and one quarter inches in width. The dial plate engravings. The gilt dial is incised throughout with figures and inscriptions in engraving of the very finest quality, as is evidenced in the illustrations. The frontispiece is surmounted at its center by the crowned double eagle of the House of Habsburg, indicating the identity of the sovereign in whose reign it was made, Emperor Francis I, or the Empress Maria Theresa of Austria. Below the eagle at either side are flying cherubs, supporting ribbons with inscriptions. Centered at the bottom of the frontispiece, immediately above the chapterings, is the moving silvered orb representing the sun. Surrounding it is a tableau of the Holy Trinity, with the Virgin Mary being crowned by Christ, holding a cross at the left, and God with a sword in hand at the right, and a dove, representing the Holy Spirit, hovering over the Virgin's head. Father S. X. Winters, S. J., considers it reminiscent of the triptych The Coronation of the Virgin by Fra Lippo Lippi. In the upper spandrels of the dial are two more cherubs, bearing ribbons with inscriptions. In the lower left corner is a magnificent engraving of Atlas, upholding the globe of the world, inscribed with the zodiac over his head. The lower right corner features the figures of two noblemen apparently examining and discussing an orb upon a table, the significance of which is not clear. The Inscriptions Beginning with the uppermost part of the frontispiece, there are nine inscriptions in Latin on the dial plate. The topmost is Franciscus I sit plan, dominator eternus. The phrase has reference to Francis I, who was emperor of the Holy Roman Empire from 1745 to 1765, and husband of Empress Maria Theresa of Austria. The phrase may be translated as May Francis I be the eternal ruler by favor of the planets, or more simply, Long live Francis I, Emperor. Although the dial plate of the Borghese clock is inscribed with his name, the records indicate that the clock was presented to Maria Theresa. Francis I may have already died before the presentation was made. From the left to the right, over the tableau of the Holy Trinity, is the phrase La Sacra Sancte Triade Uni Deo et Dea Pare. Praise be to the Most Holy Trinity, to the One God, and to the Mother of God. Within the upper left and right spandrels is inscribed Isteic, Signum Grande Apariwit in Coelho, Sancta Die Genetrix Amicita Sole, Illibato Pede Lune, et Serpentis Nigra Premens Conva, Bis Senis Pulcherime Coronata Sideribus, Tempe Indicenita Clausa Scatoriga Signata, Cedrus in Libano, Cyprisis in Montesion, Mata Pure Delectionis Sancticu Spie. Chara patris eterni prolis, verbi mata, sponsicure procedentis, gratiae et gloriae circundata varietate. This inscription is a eulogy to the Virgin Mary, assembled from the texts of Holy Scripture. In addition, each lemma contained within asterisks carries out the chronogram 1764, the year the clock was completed. Each lemma is translated and identified from the Douye Reims version of the Bible. This woman, a great sign appeared in heaven. Apocalypse, chapter 12, verse 1. The Holy Mother of God clothed with the sun. Apocalypse, chapter 12, verse 1. And with unharmed foot crushing the black horns of the moon. Apocalypse, chapter 12, verse 1. And the serpent, 
Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Most beautifully crowned with twice six, Apocalypse chapter 12, verse 1. A garden, tempe, enclosed, sealed with a fountain spring of water, Song of Songs, chapter 4, verse 12. Like a cedar in Lebanon and a cypress tree in Mount Zion, Ecclesiasticus, chapter 24, verse 17. Mother of pure love and of holy hope, beloved daughter of the Eternal Father, mother of the world, spouse of the Holy Spirit, Ecclesiasticus, chapter 24, verse 24. Surrounded with a diversity of grace and glory, Psalms, chapter 44, verse 10. At the lower left corner below the figure of Atlas upholding the world is the phrase Assidua proni donanti conta labori. The favorable gods willingly grant all things to the assiduous laborer. The same phrase is quoted by Father Borghese in the text of his second volume. The last inscription appears at the lower right corner under the figures of the two noblemen. Diligit audacis trepidos fortuna repellet. Fortune favors the daring and rejects the timid. The last two inscriptions are in dactylic hexameter. They appear to be original compositions, inasmuch as no classical prototypes have been identified. Center Dial Inscriptions In addition to the inscriptions previously noted on the outer dial plate, there are three major inscriptions in the central dial. The outermost states Circulus Horarius Sole, Lune, Fixus, Nodus, Estuici Marino Communis, the hour circle, common to the sun, the moon, the fixed stars, the nodes, and to the sea tide. This inscription is divided into four parts by the insertion of four divisions for the day into canonical hours, horae, nocturnae, night hours, matutinae, morning hours, diurnae, daytime hours, and vespertinae, evening hours. The next section of the central dial is inscribed in Tumiskite Detumiskite, rise and fall of the tides, repeated at intervals of approximately every six hours. Within the next section is the following inscription, inscribed continuously around the ring. Lege fluent, refluent, dormitant hac maris unde, et phoebe et phoebus concordia issua moventur aquora, Discordi iusu suspensa quisquunt. Translated, this is, by this law, the sea waves ebb and flow and lie dormant. When Phoebus and Diana agree in their commands, the waters are moved. When they disagree, the waters lie silent. Within the central boss of the diaplate, the name of the maker is inscribed. Brigesi doctore et Bertola limitore Ananiensibus. Translated, this is by Dr. Borghese and Bertola, mechanician citizens of Anani. Indicators in the frontispiece. There are twelve windows in the frontispiece, through each of which appears an indication relating to time. Beginning at the top of the frontispiece of the dial, the first opening occurs on the breast of the imperial eagle. This indicates the dominating planet represented by its symbol and its house. The opening in the eagle's left claw, labeled Lit Dom, is the dominical letter. The first seven days in the month of January are each assigned one of the letters A through G in order of appearance. The letter, which coincides 
with the first Sunday within this period is called the Dominical Letter, and it serves for the following year. In leap year, two letters are required, one to February 29th, and the letter next proceeding for the remainder of the year. This letter is used in connection with establishing the date of Easter Sunday. The date of Easter regulates the dates of the other movable feasts. The eagle's right claw is labeled capital C, Y, C, period, capital E, lowercase p, capital E, capital C, and represents the epact, or the age of the moon on January 1st. It serves to find the moon's age by indicating the number of days to be added to each lunar cycle in order to complete a solar year. Twelve lunar months are nearly eleven days short of the solar year, so that the new moons in one year fall eleven days earlier than they did the preceding year. However, thirty days are deducted as an intercalary month, since the moon has made a revolution in that time, and the remainder, three, would be the epact. Below the imperial eagle, two winged cherubs support a ribbon with three indications of the Julian period. This period of 7,980 years is the product derived from multiplying together the sums of 28, which represents the cycle of the sun, 19, representing the cycle of the moon, and 15, which represents the Roman indiction. The Julian period is reckoned to have begun from 4713 B.C., so that the period will be complete in A.D. 3267. The first of the three openings is marked capital I-N-D period, capital R-O-M period, or Roman indiction, which is an edict by the Emperor Constantine in A.D. 312 providing for the assessment of a property tax at the beginning of each 15-year cycle. It continues to be used in ecclesiastical contracts. The second opening which occurs immediately below the eagle, is marked capital CYC period, capital SOL period, cycle of the sun. The cycle takes a period of 28 years, after which the days of the week once again fall upon the same days of the month as they did during the first year of the former cycle. There is no relationship with the course of the sun itself, but was invented for the purpose of determining the dominical letter which designates the days of the month on which the Sunday occurs during each year of the cycle. Since cycles of the sun date from nine years before the Christian era, it is necessary to add the digit nine to the digits of the current year and then divide the result by 28. The quotient is the number of cycles which has passed, and the remainder will be the year of the cycle answering to the current year. The third opening on the ribbon is labeled capital N-U-M period, capital A-U-R period, the golden number. Meton, an astronomer of Athens, discovered in 432 B.C. that after a period of 19 years, the new and the full moons returned on the same days of the month as they had before, and this is called the cycle of the moon. The Greeks were so impressed with this calculation that they had it inscribed in letters of gold upon stone hence the golden number. The first council of Nicaea, in A.D. 325, determined that Meton's cycle was to be used to regulate the movable feasts of the church. Immediately above the chapter rings is an opening through which the orb of the sun is visible. The Chapter Ring Assembly 
In a separate chapter in his second volume, entitled Descriptio Automatis, Summa Totius Operis Mechanici, Description of the Automaton, Summary of the Complete Mechanism, Father Borghese provided a description of the functions of the various indicators, prefixing it with the short poem shown in figure 18. He then continues, In the middle of the frontispiece, as at the center of the universe, the terraqueous globe of the week revolves, with a daily motion turning from right to left, bringing with it, from the round window, the coming day, and at the circumference the circle of hours common to the sun, to the moon, to the fixed stars, to the head and tail of the dragon, and to the raging sea. The second circle revolves the synodic periodic measure of the raging sea, the days of the median lunar synodic age, the signs and individual decrees of the signs of the distance of the moon from the middle of the sun within the time of twenty-nine terrestrial revolutions. Hours, 12.44.3.13. This circle revolves likewise from right to left around the center of the earth. In this second circle, another little orb revolves, bringing with it the epicycle of the moon, in which the little circle of the moon, whose illuminated middle always faces towards the sun, running from left to right through the signs of the anomaly, within thirteen revolutions of the earth, hours 18.39.16. It descends from apogee to perigee, and in just as many others it returns from perigee to apogee to be carried down thus to true, back and front from the longitude and distance from the sun and from the middle of the earth. The third cycle, on which I have tried to indicate astronomically, geometrically, in their places, the degrees of lunar latitude both in the south and in the north, and some fixed stars, those, namely, which can be separated by us from the moon, which goes between, from left to right, turns around the center of the earth, stretching out the head and tail of the dragon, on the inside above the second circle, for noting and measuring the sun, but I should rather say the earth, and the eclipses of the moon, within 346 revolutions of the earth, hours 14.52.23. The fourth circle, in which the heaven of the fixed stars, reduced to the correct ascent of our times, the signs of the zodiac, and the individual degrees of the signs, the months of the year, and the single days of the month can be seen, likewise makes its journey around the earth from left to right in 365 terrestrial revolutions, hours 5.48.56, that is, with a median astronomical year. Above this annual orb, the sun, in its small epicycle, gliding through the twelve signs of the anomaly within the space of 182 terrestrial revolutions, hours 15.6.58, from left to right, falls from apogee to perigee, and within the same time rises from perigee to apogee, and brings with it the index, namely its central radius, inheriting to the axis of the equatorial orb, and cutting the four greatest circles from the center. When the sun has been moved around, Iris shows from six windows the era, that is, the current year. Two winged youths take their place next to Iris, carrying the Julian period, namely the Roman indiction, 
the cycle of the sun and the golden number on a leaf of paper held between them the imperial eagle stands out on top as if added to the frontispiece carrying on its breast the dominating planet and its talons the ecclesiastical calends that is the dominical letter and the epact end of section five